Did you know that there's something called the million dollar spot that enables men to have multiple orgasms? Well, one of the reasons you might not have heard about it is the fact that our culture has misguided many men into experiencing shame associated with a desire for exploration, from the perineum to the prostate. Today's episode features Charlie Glickman as we explore his expertise in the areas of sex and shame, sex positivity, and masculinity and gender. Charlie is a sex and relationship coach, an internationally acclaimed speaker, as well as the author of the book, The Ultimate Guide to Prostate Pleasure, Erotic Exploration for Men and Their Partners. Learn more on our website and social media at bbxx.world. Everybody, today we have Charlie Glickman joining us. Thank you for being here at the ASECT interview we're doing here at the conference in Denver, Colorado. It's lovely to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. To jump into things, I kind of wanted to first talk a bit about you cover many themes from prostate play to shame to relationships of all kinds, communication, authenticity, and I wanted to kind of get a background for our listeners to catch them up to speed and talk a little bit about how really the landscape of masculinity has evolved over the last decades and certainly going farther back in time. But if you could just speak a little bit to how things have changed, how the definition of what it means to be a man, how people perceive that and how they feel about themselves in relation to that definition, how it's changed for the better and perhaps for the worst. Let's see. Well, where to start with that? I think even though masculinity and images of masculinity have changed to a degree, fundamentally they haven't really changed much in the last 25 years. I I use an exercise in some of my workshops that I've adapted from Paul Kivel's book, Men's Work, uh, where we do a brainstorm of uh, stereotypical traits of men, a quote-unquote real man. Mm -hmm. And I ask the groups about what he looks like physically, what clothes he wears, what jobs he has, what he does for fun, what his relationships are like, what his sex life is like. And I've been doing this workshop for about 25 years with groups of all different ages, genders, races, sexual orientations across the board, and the answers are consistent. You could take the results that I got 25 years ago and the results that I got you know, now and they look almost exactly the same. Mm -hmm. So at the core, masculinity hasn't changed too terribly much. We sometimes have these little attempts at changes. There was metrosexuality a while back, and Mm -hmm. we're seeing more and more about men, for example, being stay-at-home parents or uh, developing deeper skill sets around emotional work, that kind of thing. But fundamentally, it hasn't really changed. Um, It it changes in the details, but the overarching model is much the same. Mm -hmm. And how do you think that people, because I know now, you know, being a stay-at-home dad has become more culturally acceptable, more common. How do you think that people can kind of help the evolutionary process progress more quickly and like become a part of it themselves and changing how they perceive it, how they act? Um, And especially for people who don't fall into that more traditional box 
of, you know, adjectives describing that stereotypical man, somebody who perhaps does stay at home or is emotionally available, emotionally open, how can they then help incorporate a new definition in with their own behaviors and feelings? I think there's a couple of different things folks can do to shift their relationship to masculinity. Uh, One of them is shame resilience. Mm -hmm. Uh, Coming from Brene Brown's work, especially her first book, I Thought It Was Just Me, it has a lot of tools for developing shame resilience. Although I do want to put the, the caveat that her research was based on women's experiences of shame. And it wasn't until her fourth book that she acknowledged that in some ways men and women experience shame differently, and she doesn't address people outside the gender binary at all, as far as I've seen. Uh, But many of her tools I've used in my life and with my coaching clients, and they're pretty effective. Uh, The reason why I say that is that our attitudes about gender roles some of them get locked into our systems before we're even verbal, you know, Mm -hmm. when we're little, little kids. And that's one of the reasons why people who, you know, break gender rules or cross gender boundaries, you know, many people have this sort of visceral reaction that they have trouble putting into words. It's because the roots of those ideas happen before we even have words. Mm -hmm. You know, when, when babies are, uh, when, when researchers look at how babies are handled and touched and talked to, it varies tremendously by gender, right. both in terms of infant and adult. So shame resilience is one big piece. And I think another piece of it is really looking at the way that the gender binary is set up with men over here. Yeah. And, and for men, if we do anything that is stereotypically classified as female, we lose all of our masculine status. Mm -hmm. It's an either or. Either you're all the way in or you're all the way out. This was one of the things that came up quite a bit when we were researching the book that I co-authored, The Ultimate Guide to Prostate Pleasure, because for a lot of people, the idea of men receiving anal penetrative sex means that he loses all of his masculine status, and it's not just men who believe that. So looking at how we have this deeply held binary that is enforced by shame, I think is the first step. Yeah, and I think that's so interesting what you said, because I often wonder, for example, you know, in the workplace, people talk about if you have a woman who's a CEO or a boss and she's kind of really demanding, it's seen, or, you know, for example, if she sacrifices having a family or whatever, it's seen as kind of selfish or like desperate. And if a man does that, sometimes it's seen as more like ambitious and it's not any part of the behavior that's any different. It's, It's only the perception of it. And going all the way into relationships and emotional behaviors, if it was just lists of attributes, if you would even be able to tell who in the relationship yeah. is male versus female, and I don't necessarily think that you would be able to, so it, it's just the perception. Well, and perception is real. There was a study that was done looking at how languages where nouns are gendered, so a lot of European languages where yeah. nouns are either male or female, they specifically looked at objects that were masculine in one gender and feminine in a different gender. And, you know, things like bridges and forks and just random objects. 
in the languages where those objects were viewed as masculine, they were seen as strong and well-built and powerful. And where the exact same object, the exact same photograph that people were shown, when it's coded as feminine, it's graceful and elegant. Right. And it's the exact same picture, but it's coded in people's brains as masculine or feminine and therefore has these traits. So, yeah, that's a thing. People do that. And in terms of um, shame resilience, like you mentioned earlier, if you could give just a few kind of tips or examples, perhaps, to our listeners in terms of how they could incorporate that into their own lives, what would that be? Well, first off, check out Brene Brown. Yeah. Because she goes into much more detail. But shame fundamentally is a whole spectrum of emotions. This is a place where, where Brene Brown and I differ because I see shame as a whole spectrum of feelings in the way that anger or happiness is a spectrum of feelings. She labels shame as the end of that spectrum. But for me, shame, guilt, embarrassment, humiliation, you know, those are all just different points on this spectrum. And at the core, shame is the message that I am not accepted as I am. Yeah, and right. sometimes it's more the person themselves not accepting them rather than anybody else. Right, sometimes it's internalized. You know, if you grew up, for example, in a household where you were shamed for fill in the blank, right, after a while those messages become so internalized that there's sort of that inner critic or inner parent or grandparent or whoever it is, you know, their voice is running the show. Because shame is all about the relationship between two people, it really needs to be healed in relationship. Mm -hmm. um, and this is one of the things that therapists and coaches can do. This is a lot of my work, is giving people an opportunity to express themselves and be who they are and be seen and valued as they are as a step towards healing the past shames that they have had. It's, yeah. it's deep work. Yeah. Um, but because shame happens on a visceral level, on a neurological level, it's deep work to do this. And really in a way that's our, all of our relationships are about healing everything we've learned from the past or experienced problems or the way we've grown up, the influences yeah. from you know, our cultures or our family cultures. And one of my teachers likes to say that when people in relationships get into one of those, like, never-ending triggering each mm -hmm. other, as challenging as it is, it's actually a beautiful opportunity to heal whatever the root cause of right. those injuries were. You know, that's, again, a big commitment to each other to do. Yeah. Going back to how you mentioned the book that you co-authored about prostate pleasure, if you could kind of just speak to the themes that came up in that about shame, and especially from the research I've read a lot too, there seems to be a strong tie going back to the definition of what it means to be a man, masculinity, and all of that. Um, if you could just yeah. speak a little more to that. Sure. We have a whole chapter specifically yeah. on this. Mm -hmm. uh, when we wrote the book, we did a, an internet survey of a couple of hundred people, both men and partners of men, and one of the questions that we asked is, what were some of the concerns or worries that you had when you first tried this? And there were three that showed up over and over again. Is this going to hurt? Is this going to get messy? Is this going to make me gay? Now, those first two, right, is this going to hurt? Is this going to get messy? Those are concerns that people of any gender might have about anal play. Mm-hmm. 
but the level of anxiety around them was much higher for men on the receiving side. Mm-hmm. Um, but that third question, is this going to make me gay? You know, If I enjoy anal penetration, does that mean something about my masculinity? Am I giving up masculine status? Am I being dominated necessarily? Because we have this idea that to be penetrated, to be fucked, is to lose status. And so at the core, that says some fascinating things about gender roles. Which is just so backwards about femininity. Exactly. I mean, if it just means to like lose power and exactly. not be worth it, well, that's well, terrible. But, but think about the phrase, right? If something bad happens, oh, I'm so fucked. Yeah. Yeah. There's a meaning there. To be fucked over, yeah. Right. And so how would you go into trying to express to people that in reality, what you do like reflects nothing about your sexuality. It's also, only your perception. Well, here's where I go with it, which is that who you have sex with, that's your sexual orientation. What feels good to you, that's where your nerve endings are. And those two things don't have anything yeah. to do with each other. Any more than enjoying pizza means that you can only eat pizza with a certain person. And from a sexological perspective... If two people of different genders are engaging in a sex act, no matter what that act is, it's heterosexual sex because they're not of the same gender. It doesn't matter. And ultimately, you know, what this means is that men have lost so much pleasure potential in our bodies because we have this notion that all of our sexual pleasure is about the penis and is about conquest and scoring and all of that. We lose so many possibilities for feeling good. And if we can shed these attitudes, suddenly all of these new opportunities come our way. Yeah. And it's just funny because if there wasn't that stereotype beforehand or if it wasn't associated with, you know, non-straight sex. Yeah. Um, for example, like children often hump inanimate objects just because it feels good. I'm wondering without that whole stereotype and cultural pressure that it's been put on top of that, if it would be different. Have you guys found any different patterns across cultures in terms of from masculinity to prostate pleasure, if there are any cultures or places that tend to have a healthier perception in any way? Not really. Almost every culture that I've come across really has this idea that receiving anal penetration means you lose status. And by the way, this is not restricted to heterosexual communities. There are some gay men who I've talked with who have the idea that if you're a top, and I'm using the word top in the sense of who's doing the penetrating, Mm -hmm. not the BDSM sense of the word, although there's some parallels, but that if you are the top, you are more masculine, and men who are more feminine must be bottoms. And I've talked with quite a few gay men who were exclusively tops, and they had some real fears about bottoming. And Mm -hmm. giving up that status, that privilege, that Mm macho-ness. So this idea is is everywhere. The ironic thing for me in all of this is that this idea that to receive penetration means that you lose status or that you're being dominated. Now, there's nothing wrong with consensual domination if that's what you want to do. But being penetrated doesn't have to mean you're giving up anything. Yeah. You you can be just as in charge while receiving penetration as giving. 
Right, and it's more just about vulnerability in a way. You know, for example, if I disclose something about me or if I share feelings or anything that I don't know will be reciprocated, it's kind of just about putting yourself out there in a way where you're either vulnerable in terms of losing status or rejection. Like, there's not that much of a difference. And vulnerability tends to lead to the, the deeper connections. Exactly. Vulnerability is the first step towards intimacy and connection. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I have found really fascinating talking with men and men's partners about prostate play is that it's one thing to know on an intellectual level that if you're having sex with somebody and they are the one who's going to receive penetration, that they need warm-up, they need foreplay, whatever it is. You know, We know that on average uh, cisgender women need about 20 minutes of warm-up before vaginal penetration is as pleasurable as it can be. Right, so, right, we know that. But it's one thing to know that intellectually. It's another thing to have the embodied experience of really being turned on, really being into your partner, but still needing warming up. And so it tends to make men more compassionate, attuned givers because they know what it's like to receive and by the same token a lot of women i've spoken with have said wow now i understand like you know you're turned on things are getting hot and then your partner says oh wait i need more lube and that just like killed my groove for a moment i I, like had to figure out what to do and so it's walking a mile in each other's shoes that's amazing i wish everybody could do that you know i firmly believe the world is going to be a better place when more men take it up the ass (laughs) I'm writing that quote down. It's it's one of my blog posts. So Speaking yeah, of, yeah. of which, do you have any favorite stories you've heard of somebody who tried it for the first time or kind of expanded their horizons or changed the way they thought about it and was able to finally give in or change their perception? And Oh, yeah. A number of years ago, I was working at Good Vibrations, which is the premier yeah. women-friendly sex toy company anywhere. And I was working in the store... And this older guy came in. He was probably in his early to mid-60s or so. And he said, you know, I've been curious about this for a long time. I've heard about it. I don't know anything about it. This was before we wrote the book. I don't know anything about it. So I took him aside. It was a quiet day. So I could talk to him for about 10, 15 minutes, sent him home with some toys, lubricant. And he came back the next day to buy like five more toys and just talked to me for the half an hour about how amazing it was and it changed everything and oh wow I can't wait to try this with my wife and this is going to be so exciting and about a month later he came back and just wanted to share with me that he was glad he'd finally learned this but wouldn't it have been wonderful if he could have discovered this 30 years sooner which is how I feel as though every part of our sexuality and relationships and communication kind of is. Yeah. So what would kind of some actionable advice be for some of the people listening who have been curious, have wanted to try it, like that man in the store, to kind of just bite the bullet? What, what are you were. waiting for? If nobody's going to judge you or bring sure. it up with your partner or alone? Well, okay, so step one, you absolutely need lube. Yes. You won't see lubricant in porn movies. They, It's there. It just happens offset. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there is lube there, I promise you. <laughs> uh, but I've talked with a lot of people who were copying what they saw in porn and got themselves hurt. So, Which is like all sex. Yeah. Well, learning <laughs> to ha- young people. 
learning to have sex from porn would be like learning to drive from watching an action movie. Yeah, or a video right? game. Right, somebody's going to get hurt. If you watch an action movie, you know, people are driving their cars. There's no red lights. There's no traffic, right? The same They're thing, flipping upside down and they're okay. Right, the same thing happens in porn, right? Nobody ever gets a leg cramp. Nobody ever needs to turn over yeah. because they're uncomfortable, right? So step one, lots of lubricant. Mm-hmm. Step two, breathe. Long, slow exhalations slow the nervous system down and relax the pelvic floor if you hold your breath your body tightens up so breathe really truly and if you think you're doing it slow down a little bit more Uh, it makes such a difference and then the, the third one is that prostate play a lot of the time doesn't feel as good if you do it before you're turned on Right. And the reason for that is very similar to the G-spot. The reason for that is that during arousal, the prostate fills up with fluid, gets bigger, and becomes more erotically sensitive. So start off with masturbation or a blowjob or dirty talk or flirting, watching your favorite porn movie, whatever it is, before you go looking for your prostate, get turned on first. And then the last thing is that it's very difficult to reach your own prostate unless you've got long fingers and flexible wrists. So recruit a friend or try a toy. Mm-hmm. It's a difficult angle for yeah. most people. And I think people, you know, when they imagine it, they're like, what could go wrong? How awkward could it be? How messy or whatever? How uncomfortable? But I think also I'd like to point out that those situations can all often be like really rewarding especially obviously you need to be engaging in the behavior with somebody you trust somebody you're close to and can be vulnerable with but oftentimes like trying to figure things out awkward situations can really lead to a deeper connection and really great entertainment so the whole fear factor i think people should look at it from more of the the positive light i agree and i think it's worth acknowledging that the question of whether it's going to get messy or whether it's going to be uncomfortable or painful, people of any gender can have those fears, but the level of anxiety is much higher. Mm-hmm. You know, I've talked with men who, with female partners, you know, they wanted to have anal sex with her receiving, and they just wanted to go for it. But when he's receiving, there needs to be all this preparation. Right. And I think that speaks to the anxiety that yeah. we have. I've also heard you mention in one of your interviews something called the million dollar point. Yes. Something about how to separate ejaculation from orgasm. Yes. Tell so, me everything. <laughs> well, so this is something that you can learn about in Montak Chia's book, The Multi-Orgasmic Man. It's an acupressure point that interrupts the ejaculation if you do it at the right time so that you can keep from ejaculating and then you can learn to separate orgasm and ejaculation. You know, we normally think of those two things for men as being simultaneous, but they're actually two different circuits in the body. And if you learn to separate them, you can have orgasms for as long as you can keep going because you don't have the refractory period that comes from ejaculation. The reason why it's called the million dollar point that I don't know if this is true, but the legend is that in ancient China, uh, because this was the spot that you know, every man wanted to know, the, like the Taoist masters charged a thousand pieces of gold. 
So the traditional name for it is the Thousand Gold Peace Point. And so when they wrote the book, they updated it for modern Western audiences, Million Dollar Point. Where the point is, is it's pretty much in the center of the perineum. Mm -hmm. So right between the testicles and the anus. Uh, You can find it when, when somebody has an erection, the shaft of the penis has these two long cylinders of tissue that are like little water balloons. Yeah. Um, inside the body, they split and form a Y shape. Remarkably similar to the internal anatomy of the clitoris, by Which the way. Which is that I could go on and on about that, about how our bodies are actually just mirrors of each other and have all the same There's pieces a lot to say constructed. There. But yeah. uh, when someone has an erection, if you feel in the center of the perineum, you can feel where those two cylinders split. Mm-hmm. You're looking at like the, the fork of that Y shape. And if you press firmly, not with your fingertip because there's a nail on the end there, yeah. but like with, with your thumb. Yeah up towards the head. So if somebody's lying on his back, you press horizontally towards his head. Mm-hmm. Um, it will interrupt ejaculation. It also often will make erections get softer. And it can take up to, for some guys, up to 10 or 15 minutes before they get fully hard again. Mm-hmm. So this is a technique that helps guys separate ejaculation and orgasm. Uh, it can be a lot of fun. I imagine it's a bit of a learning curve just for people listening. It might not be first time, get it right, a little bit of a practice. And again, it's all about the the the, process. And the practice can be fun. Yeah. But yeah, I do really recommend The Multi-Orgasmic Man. It's one of the most accessible books on the topic. I guess while we're at it, some of the health benefits of prostate play, I think... Might as well advertise it more for the good. So more people are willing to... If nothing else, they can say, well, you know, my doctor told me that (laughs) I should be doing a better job taking care of myself. I've heard that health benefits of prostate play are insert script here. Insert script here. So I want to preface this by saying that there isn't any good research on this. This is all based either on anecdotes or things that logically make sense that you know, if you talk with a sex-positive doctor, they'll say, oh yeah, I could see how that would be. Mm-hmm. But there's no research funding right. for this. One benefit is massaging any part of the body increases blood flow. Uh, the prostate actually has very, very low blood flow. So massage can really help improve blood circulation, which is just good for any part of the body. But that's especially true for the prostate because it's made up of a whole bunch of like microscopic glands. Like imagine a whole bunch of microscopic toothpaste tubes that when you get turned on, they start producing fluid. And when you ejaculate, they squeeze all that fluid into the urethra then becomes semen. But those glands can get blocked. And so massaging the prostate just kind of clears them out, clears trapped fluids out. It's like a cleanse. Exactly. For men who have enlarged prostates, and 50% of cisgender men will have an enlarged prostate by the age of 50, 80% of men by the age of 80 will have an enlarged prostate, It doesn't always cause health problems, but it can, especially difficulty with urination because Mm -hmm. the prostate clamps down on the urethra. Prostate massage can often help alleviate the discomfort of an enlarged prostate. You have to do it a couple of times a week, though, because it'll keep getting enlarged. So you're basically just massaging the fluids out. And then the last thing is that prostates do sometimes get uh, infections, 
uh, a lot of the time when we get infections, the bacteria can form this sort of shield. It's called a biofilm. Um, it's like if you have plaque on your teeth and there's that film, and it's a protective covering that the bacteria produces so that you know they can grow and multiply. But because of that, and because the prostate gets very low blood flow, antibiotics can be tricky. Prostate massage breaks up the biofilm in the same way that brushing your teeth breaks up the biofilm on your teeth. Mm -hmm. And then it's just much easier for the medication to have the effect that you want it to have. Right, and while it's like a cleanse, you know, might lead to happiness, better exactly. focus, weight loss, who knows? Who knows? Well, yeah. <laughs> Try and report well, back. Yeah, well, and I will say that uh, the time that I did have a prostate infection, I knew what it was because I know where my prostate is. I know what it feels like. Right. Men who don't know that feeling, when they go into the doctor and they say, I have pain down there, it's really hard to get a good diagnosis. Right. So there's that benefit too. I, I do want to say, by the way, that all of this that I'm talking about is specific to cisgender men. Uh, transgender women do also have prostates, but depending on what choices somebody has made around medication, surgery, hormones, quite a few transgender women have reported that prostate sensations decrease. The prostate becomes smaller and less erotically sensitive for some people. Uh, so I, I mention that because if you or a partner of yours is a transgender woman, you can certainly try looking for it, but don't be surprised if it's not as interesting as it might be on a cisgender man. Mm-hmm. Also just touching techniques, information, and while a lot of people often think that sex is about what position, it's about what technique, it's about what lube, but at the end of the day, and as you've mentioned, it really isn't. It isn't about your erotic skill. It's about the connection. It's about the intimacy. It's about the vulnerability that we talked about more than anything else. Well, yeah, I, I think for me, my my take on it is that Technique and skill are important. They're useful. But if you don't have connection, it doesn't have to mean a committed relationship. You can have connection with someone who yeah. you met for the first time 10 minutes ago. Uh, you can have a connection with somebody who you met on a plane and you just happen to have a great conversation with them for a couple of hours. Right? So connection is different from commitment or monogamy mm -hmm. or anything like that. But technique without connection feels robotic. It, it doesn't last for long. It's kind of like the difference between you know, a meal that was cooked by an amazing world-class chef, but it's just you know one of a hundred meals that they cooked that day, versus a meal that maybe isn't as technically skilled, but somebody made with a lot of love and attention, and oh, I know that you really like this flavor, so I added a little extra it really does taste better. So the pieces that I see feeding this, there's presence, and presence I think often comes down to being able to just be together. I'm a big fan of breath work for this. You know, five minutes of like belly to belly breathing and like breathing in sync with each other gets your nervous systems lined up and brings presence to it. So that's number one. A second element is stepping out of compliance and into choice. Almost everybody has learned that there's times when we don't get to say no. 
of course, it has a much bigger impact on folks depending on gender, culture, religion, background, because when we're little kids, our parents have to do things for our own good Eat your vegetables. that we don't want. Eat your vegetables. You have to go to the doctor and get a shot, right? So compliance is woven into us even before we have words. And so stepping out of compliance and into choice is a huge part of creating amazing sex. You know, I talk with a lot of people who get stuck because they don't believe that they have the right to tell their partner no or to ask their partner to do something different. Or they go along with something, their partner might not even know, but they go along with something and then they end up feeling resentment. Mm -hmm. And resentment kills desire. Mm -hmm. So stepping out of compliance and into choice. And when you say choice, I, for some reason I hear desire. Well, desire and yeah. consent, naming what you want. Mm -hmm. And authenticity. Right. There's, a lot, there's a lot of pieces to that. Then there's, I think one of the big factors that people miss out on is creating a feedback loop. You know, rather than my trying to read your mind or your body language or what did that sound mean or whatever, making it easy to create a feedback loop. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways that I like to do this is using a practice that comes from sexological bodywork where we basically you know, plan a sexual experience that is like a wine tasting, mm -hmm. right? Where we're just going to compare different things. And after each thing, you tell me thumbs up, thumbs down, or scale of one to 10, how good it felt. We can play with it like if I'm scratching your arm and you rate it a three, but then I scratch slower and lighter and that makes it a six. Mm -hmm. Everyone's body is different. So we're just looking for information. But then we can look for trends, like maybe one person likes really soft touch on the clitoris and firm on the G-spot and somebody else is the other way around. Or one person likes to have their testicles squeezed really firmly and the other one is like, don't even go there. Mm -hmm. right, so we build up what we're doing by this one to 10 exercise, pleasure mapping is what it's called. There's two benefits. One is, well, now I know what things you like, so then I can just remember them for next time, knowing that they might change or depending on how turned on you are or, or whatever. But the second thing, which is actually more important, is we've made it a little easier for you to tell me, a little softer, a little firmer, do this here, not so hard, whatever it is. And that makes it easier to create that communication loop. You know, a lot of men have absorbed this idea that we're just supposed to magically know what pleases our partners. And, and honestly, a lot of people, particularly women, but not only women, buy into that as well. I want to acknowledge that part of why that can happen for some women is slut shaming. Right? Because if she names, oh, I really like to have my nipples squeezed, that comes up against slut-shaming, as well as this idea that men are supposed to read people's minds. Mm -hmm. So all of this stuff intertwines, and the pleasure mapping is a nice way to sort of break through some of that. And it comes back to the not shaming yourself nor the other person, although 
sometimes it feels like it's even harder not to shame ourselves versus somebody else. Yeah. And kind of just objectifying the observations and information. Like if we went out to dinner, if you go out on a date to a new restaurant, you wouldn't just sit there and not talk about the food. You'd be like, oh, how's your, you got the burger, how's the burger? Oh, you know, the one at the place we went last week is a little better, but the bun here, the brioche bun's really great, you know? Now I'm getting hungry, yeah. Pleasure mapping. It's the same pleasure, too, the food, the sex, it's basically... Well, and to take that even further, think about, you know, if you and I were going to go out to dinner, and we didn't have a restaurant picked out, but I saw something that looked good, and rather than saying, Mm. hey, Sasha, let's go check out this restaurant, I just kind of like bump you to try to like push you through the door that's what people are doing when they're like okay well i wanted you to touch me a little bit further to the left so i just kind of moved my hips right that's amazing use your words terrifying use your words use your words exactly talking about sex is like saying hey so you know let's go out to dinner what are you in the mood to eat yeah oh you're lactose intolerant i guess we won't get pizza so why is that different than saying you know what kind of sex are you in the mood for tonight i'm really into going down on you you know how does that sound you know why is that so different mm-hmm. i think those are questions people get a lot of benefit from asking yeah and in terms of the the benefits that you would want to tell people about and encourage people to kind of try and incorporate these things we've been talking about into their own lives, what kind of overall benefits would you try and describe to them to encourage them? Nobody can read your mind. You will have better experience. I mean, you know, my partner and I have been together for 26 years. I still can't order takeout Chinese food without asking what she's in the mood for. I just can't. You know, you will have better experiences when you are able to have these conversations. And, you know, this is one of the things that I do frequently as a coach is actually give people an opportunity to practice finding their words. So, you you know, you're welcome to contact me because I I work over Skype, but you could also do this with a trusted friend of like, I just want to practice saying, I'm really in the mood to give you a blowjob. And the other person's probably going to love to hear that. Nobody ever has said, oh, no, thank you. I mean, maybe, but they'd <laughs> still does, be excited it, it, about it. Does, it. it does happen sometimes. But, yeah. but but what will often happen is they'll say, well, you know, that's not really my thing, but how about we do this other thing right. instead? It opens it, up the opportunity for a counter offer. Yeah. Because I, I have talked to some folks for whom oral sex is not their primary thing. But then you know. And then you're not doing something thinking that the other person wants it. Well, and and this is one of the places where compliance comes in. Because I see this happen a lot where person A is thinking, oh, I'm going to do this thing because my partner will enjoy it. And person B is thinking, well, this isn't really my favorite, but I'll go along with it because they're enjoying it. Right. And so now both of them are trying to please the other and neither of them is getting what they want. Right. It's so simple yet so so difficult for many people. Well, I hope people listening to this will get some inspiration to bring this into their own lives and help share what you want, find out what other people want and get the best of both worlds. I hope so. Cause it's much more fun that way. Yeah. Thank you so much, everybody. This is sex and relationship coach, Charlie Glickman. 
He's got a book out available on Amazon about prostate pleasure, The Ultimate Guide to Prostate Pleasure. Check it out, and we'll be back again soon with more here at the ASECT Annual Conference. Thank you so much for tuning in to listen to the BBXX podcast. You can learn more on our website or on our social media at bbxx.world. And if you believe in what we're doing, please do help spread the love by sharing this with someone you care about. Until next time. Thank you.